Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Dr. Karen Hutchison. Hey guys, welcome to the Think Orphan podcast. This is Dr. Karen. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for the download. We're really excited to have you here today listening to our podcast. We've got a great show in store for you today. Phil, who's on today? Yeah, today in this uh, seventh installment of the Refugee Crisis series, I've been so, I've learned so much. I don't know about you, Karen, but I've learned so much in this in this series, um, just about the, the crisis, about how we can get involved, about the, just the realities and the myths um, that uh, that surround this, this crisis. And today, you know, it's no exception to the amazing guests we've had. These are, these are a couple folks from World Relief, uh, Emily Gray, World Relief Senior Vice President of U.S. Ministries, and Dermomo Gary, World Relief's Support Services Coordinator. They're going to share with us about the vetting and resettlement process, um, particularly here in the United States, but also they're touching on, you know, the process around the world. And and it really is something that, that I know, you know, some of this stuff may seem dry to some people, may seem that it's, you know, very, uh, you know, uh, a lot of uh, regulations and kind of details and, and whatnot, but these these two really bring you know put flesh on those those all those kind of potentially boring things and it's it's anything but so I definitely uh, encourage you to you know pull up a chair take some notes on this so that you're able to really have good conversations with people uh, on these issues that so often have become politicized so often have become something that people are arguing about but at the end of the day they're really helping us understand how we can welcome the stranger in our midst how we can love people around us and what that might look like in a real way and Jermon has a personal story that's so connected to this. So I definitely know that you're going to enjoy this conversation I was able to have with both of them. And I look forward to hearing your feedback on what they have to say. So here it goes. Well, it is so great to have Emily Gray and Dermomo Garrett here with me today. I'm, I'm very, very excited um, for this conversation that we're going to be able to have. We're going to be able to talk about uh, refugee resettlement and vetting with some people that know this topic very well, um, have personal experience with it. And so, you know, I, I am going to just let you guys out there hear from uh, Dermomo and hear his story a little bit uh, to kick off this uh, this interview. So, Dermomo, can you just share with with our audience uh, just how you got to be where you are with uh, with World Relief today? Oh, yeah. Uh, thank you for your question. Uh, before coming here, I worked for um, Canon USA, and uh, I came to World Relief initially because I was actually resettled in the U.S. through World Relief itself, so now I am part of the staff in the DuPage office. Yeah, and can you just give a little bit of, of how, you know, where you came from, how you got um, to the U.S., really? Oh, yes. I left Sudan many years ago. I uh, ended up in Egypt as a refugee, and then after that, I got settled to USGS through war relief. Um, it has been a journey that took years, not overnight, so the process is a little bit long. So, yeah, I'm here now. <laughs> We're glad you are. Um, we'll get into a little bit more of the specifics a little bit later in the interview, but uh, there is so much more to that story, and, and uh, I look forward to, to letting everyone share in a little bit that as we, as we talked about. Uh, we're going to get into that a little bit later. But Emily, uh, can you just share uh, how you got to be where you are today with World Relief and what you're doing um, with this great organization? 
Sure. Today I'm serving as our Senior Vice President for U.S. Ministries, meaning I'm looking out for our network of 22 cities where we are serving the foreign-born population. Um, A big chunk of that is through refugee resettlement. And I came to this work um, about seven years ago. My background is I was a missionary in Central America for many years, still remain very involved in that kind of mission work. But I'm also a social worker by profession. So those things have been put together for me. And now I just try to help us do a really good job. Um, I think we do a really good job in welcoming the foreign born to the U.S., yeah, I agree with that. Um, with all that I've seen and all that I've heard, uh, it's some amazing, amazing work. And, you know, that, that's a lot of what we're going to talk about today is just, you know, we've, we've had some other uh, episodes in this, in this series. In fact, uh, Scott uh, Arbery, or the president of World Relief, shared with us uh, a few episodes ago on just the, the issues that are kind of the fundamental underlying issues that are going on. And, and really the legitimate issues that, you know, on both sides that, of the argument that people are, are concerned about security and people are concerned about, you know, but we need to love this, you know, welcome the stranger. And what does all that look like? You know, those are those are issues that we're not really going to get into today because we have covered those um, by some amazing people in other in other episodes. But today we really want to focus on the. Uh, the process, the vetting and resettlement process, which I think has is so misunderstood by a lot of people. It does go into those other conversations. Um, but, uh, you know, I just want to hear from you, Emily, on, on what is the, the process really for uh, why people are resettled? Um, you know, what, what goes into that uh, discussion and uh, really what the different possible solutions, uh, resettlement solutions for refugees are? Well, I guess I'll start kind of at the beginning of this, because no one is resettled to any country just on a whim. As Dermomo mentioned in his introduction, it is a very long process. And it starts with the collaborative work of the nations of the world through the United Nations, and specifically at the United Nations, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. This is, you know, when you have people who are crossing borders, going from one country to another, it really is the United Nations that most countries of the world look to, to say, how do we, how do we handle this internation kind of movement of people who are in distress being displaced from their homes. So there are about, um, the statistics are are just staggering, about 65 or more than 65 million people who've been displaced from their homes. And around 23 million of those fall under the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. So any resettlement of someone to another country really starts with that international organization. Yeah, and, and so, you know, when, when a person, uh, what, what makes a person considered uh, a possible candidate for resettlement versus those that are just, you know, staying within their country or staying within refugee camps or whatever it may be. Uh, actually, that is part of the resettlement process. But what, yeah. what are the what are the different uh, solutions? And then why would somebody be in the in the pool of candidates to come to the United States or a different country that is outside of their region? When the United Nations is looking at how to deal with 
a group of people who have been displaced across their border. So we are talking, we talk about refugees. They're different from people who are internally displaced. They may be people who are still in their own country. They were living in one city because of war, because of violence, because of persecution. They left that city but went somewhere else within their own nation's borders. But refugees are folks who have actually had to cross a border into another country. And those folks first of all, are not economic migrants. Um, They are folks who apply to the United Nations and they have to show that they have been persecuted or they have a reasonable fear of persecution based on their race, religion, ethnic group, social affiliation or political opinion. So those five things are the things that distinguish someone who is applying for refugee status. And once folks apply to be a refugee with the UNHCR, then they're looking at three possible what they call permanent solutions. The first one is the one that most refugees would want, and that is to be able to go home again. But because of the level of persecution faced by many refugees, that's not certainly not a near-term possibility, and it may not be a possibility ever. The second solution that UNHCR looks at is can people stay in the country where they have sought asylum? So they've left, let's say someone from Syria has left their home. They're in the country of Jordan. Or Dermomo mentioned he left Sudan. He was in Egypt. So can someone stay in that country of first asylum? Most of the world's refugees, the vast majority of the world's refugees, are actually hosted in very poor developing countries, not in the wealthier countries of what we would consider the developed world. And many times these countries cannot support the influx of people. Today in the country of Lebanon, there are more Syrian school-aged children than Lebanese school-aged children because of the size of the crisis. So when you think about that, you can think about why a country can't just say, okay, you're seeking asylum here. Come, we will make you one of our citizens. We will help you integrate into our country. So the third option then is resettlement to a third country. The threes work together. It's the third option, and it would be a third country, not the country where someone was born, not where they've sought asylum, but a third country. And that's where that's where the United States first comes into this process at all. Yeah. And then and then what is the the you know, I know there's some categories that are given priority consideration for resettlement, whether it's to the U.S. or to another Western uh, developed country. Um, and you know, can you just go into that and then while, after you're able to just kind of share those priority consideration, uh, groups, uh, can you just share what the vetting process actually is before someone would even in, even enter into the U S? Sure. Um, in 1980, for the United States anyway, we passed the Refugee Act, and that sets out some of the criteria for the people that the United States has said now for going on, uh, going on 40 years, that we will that we will assist. And 
Ours is specifically a humanitarian refugee program, meaning that the United States focuses on the most vulnerable in a vulnerable group of people. So each nation that does any kind of resettlement sets out their criteria to the United Nations, and the United Nations looks at the people in need of resettlement and refers those people to a country based on that country's criteria. And so the folks who were referred to the United States are our refugees are predominantly women and children, about 45-ish percent, plus or minus a few percent of those who are welcome to the United States are children because um, children are among the most vulnerable living in refugee camps or living in urban areas as refugee children. So we really focus on um Single moms, children, uh, families, if we can possibly keep them together uh, or reunify families. These are some of the priorities of the United States is to bring families back together or give the most vulnerable people a start. And that vetting process, we've heard a lot about it in the news. It is the single most rigorous process through which any immigrant would ever go to enter into the United States. It involves multiple federal agencies. You know, you hear in the news, if you listen to some of these programs, you hear banded about somewhere between 18 and, and 24 months. Um, We've certainly met with people, I personally know people, for whom the process was five years and more. It's not a straightforward process because it oftentimes takes a long time for someone to be able to prove their case. I was fortunate to be in a meeting uh, about this time last year with the UN commissioner, uh, Filippo Grande, and he and his staff were sharing that even of those referred to the United States, only about 40% of them are ever accepted by the United States because the process is so very rigorous. And it involves multiple interviews with multiple United States and international law enforcement organizations. It includes all kinds of biometric screening from fingerprints to retina scans, um, for family reunification, it can even involve DNA testing to prove the familial relationship. It includes multiple in-person interviews where families are literally separated and any discrepancies in their stories one to the other um, are could be grounds for not being granted entrance into the United States. Um, their stories are checked very thoroughly against both military records and other kinds of records of if they say they had to flee because their city was under a bombardment at such and such a time, we can look back and know whether that is a credible story. And so through this various process, um, people are also screened medically that there are no communicable diseases, those kinds of things coming in. and. This whole process goes back and forth for a period usually of, you know, a couple of years to five to seven years, depending on how long it takes to prove the particular case before someone is admitted to the U.S. Yeah, you know, there's so much to it. And, and I know that the, the book that uh, World Relief has, has put out recently, Seeking Refuge, goes into this in, in much greater detail. And I, I strongly recommend people out there. To the extent this is really something you're interested in learning more on, that book is such a, a great resource um, that uh, you know I, I know I learned a lot from when I when I was finally able to sit down and read it. 
so yeah, I know that there's, you know, this is just scratching the surface as you're giving us the summary of it, but it is rigorous as, as Scott said, and as you said, you, know, you can't choose to just come, yeah, I want to go to that country and you can't just go, okay, well, that's where I'm going to go. This is something that is chosen for you to a certain extent, which kind of goes to the next, um, issue that practically speaking the you know, when they are able to get through that rigorous process, um, and resettle in the U S you know, life doesn't necessarily just take on this. Oh, now life is great, uh, approach. Um, but it's <laughs> not, actually, not hardly. yeah, right. So can you, I know I want, I want Dermobo to speak to this as well, but can you, Emily, just real quick, just say what, when they get to the U S can you speak to what the typical, um, process is on entry into the U S and then, um, and then Dermomo, I'd like you to share, uh, just from your personal experience on what that really looked like from a, you know, from your standpoint, from your, uh, from your eyes. Yeah, the the typical process where an organization like World Relief gets involved, and there are nine organizations who work directly with the U.S. Department of State. World Relief is one of nine that has a network of offices across the country. So other organizations likewise have a network across the country. Um, and our job really starts at the port of entry. So... Um, we're recording this, and Dermoma works in our office in the western suburbs of Chicago, and so that would be O'Hare Airport. That's where we really pick up. And the government provides a small grant, $1,125, for each refugee who's entering the country. And that's not a lot of money to restart your life. But that is the grant, and that's the total amount that is provided. Um, refugees enter immediately with a work permit. So many refugees are working within just weeks of landing in the United States because all of the agencies like World Relief, we are really trying to work with folks, receive them, get them into um Simply fully furnished home, um, understanding and doing all kinds of orientation to the new community, to um, what life is going to be like, to the realities of working and having to pay your own way in America. And this this work happens very quickly because obviously um, $1,100 doesn't last a whole long time. So we're moving very, very rapidly with newly arriving refugees to try to help families at least stabilize in their new environment. Yeah, definitely. So, Dermoma, what was that like when you step off a plane and you're just completely starting over, a new life in a country that you know nothing about? Yeah, it, you know, it wasn't an easy process at all. Um, uh, just, um, you know, just a short story here. You know, we landed in New York, okay, and uh, it was on Halloween day. <laughs> So that was my first problem in America. I never heard about it. I never read about it. And here I'm in the airport seeing these people around me. <laughs> so that's my number one difficulty to understand where, what I'm getting into right now. And then starting life all over here is quite challenging. You know, I, you know, I came from Africa. You know, it is sunny throughout the year. I'm in Chicago. It's winter time. And I have to get up in the morning and go to work. That is a problem by itself. Mm -hmm. um, and then starting to work. And then at the end of the month, you know, as Emily said earlier, you pay your rent, 
And that's pretty much what you have. You know, kids around you, you need to buy diapers, you need to buy things for them. And I was unable to afford. And here I'm looking around. Is this the life I really want to live? Is this how I've been living for the rest of my life? Because it's tough. And, you know, back home, if life is tough, you may run to a neighbor, an uncle, an auntie, you know, borrow some money. No, it's not available here. Mm-hmm. Even if I approach, I've reached out to a bank to get a loan, you know, no one is going to give me a loan. You know, I just got here. I, got, I have zero credit. So it is a tough life to begin with, and, and it, it's very stressing. You know, to think about it, you look at your family, and you can provide for them everything you really plan to provide for them. That has been quite a challenge for me right away from the beginning. Yeah, and I just want to go back a step. When, when you heard that you were going to be resettled to the U.S. from where you were before, what was your, what was your feeling? What was your reaction to that? Uh, my reaction was, I don't know what I'm getting into, but I'm hoping for better. Mm-hmm. Because I know what I just left behind me. I can't go back to it. I can't handle I can't deal with it. So I'm pretty much open to dive into whatever would happen. Here is, here is, here is the problem. When I look back, there is no life where I come from, and I had to choose between the two, either to leave or possibly die. Mm-hmm. So... What I'm going to, maybe I may not die the way I went from. So that's why I was, I was kind of accepting it, just going to it, not knowing fully what I'm going through. Yeah, definitely. And then you go through that entire process, that rigorous process that Emily talked about. Mm-hmm. You get to the U.S. on Halloween, seeing a bunch of people dressed up weird, and you're wondering what in the world, what is this United States I'm getting into? And then you get, yes. and then you get to where you're settling down. And what helped you adjust? What helped you get to where you were there to where you are today? Um, and and what were the things that really uh, you remember in the process? That these were kind of watershed moments for you, where you said, "This is what helped me get through." Um, you know, what relief as an agency have played a big role in that. Because coming here, I have no family. I have no friends around. So if I have any problem, the only people I can talk to is World Relief. Uh, I had nobody's phone number except World Relief's phone. I had no one to speak to except the World Relief case workers. And to me, that, that has become a new community. That, that's my new family, that's my new extended family. So I know whatever happens to me at any time, I can call a caseworker from Waterloo and somebody would show up to help me. That's to some degree have helped to stabilize what I was going through. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and with that, Emily, can you speak to, um, I know that there's several, there's, there's several services that, that World Relief does provide. It's not just meeting people at the airport. Um, but there's a whole lot more to it. I know there's the, the good neighbor team that I, that I read about in uh, Seeking Refuge and other, and other places. And there's some other things that you're doing. Can you speak to the different services that World Relief does provide for people like your mama who come um, into a brand new country and really are deer in the headlights a lot of times? I really love Dermomo's definition because 
we really do seek to be a big part of the new community for refugees, but not in order for refugees to remain connected with us as an agency. Mm-hmm. Our job is really one of broker in in so many ways, both helping to broker and translator. And, and I don't just mean language. I mean, something like okay, there's this thing called Halloween and there are people in these costumes and it looks weird and it is weird, but this is what happens here. Um, And so we go through cultural orientation for people helping to explain everything from how 911 works to what's expected when you enroll your children in U.S. public schools. We try to work with kids. You know, so many refugee families will are willing to go through the process of resettlement, not only about safety, but because they want a different future for their children. They know they cannot go home again. They don't want their children to live in limbo. And they, they go through all of the struggle that it is to settle into a new place because of their kids. And so we try to support the children, but also support the parents. Can you imagine having your child in a U.S. public school if you'd never been a part of the U.S. education system? Hmm. I mean, that is a daunting task as a parent. The language is probably one of the key measures for refugees to be able to succeed in the United States. So some of our World Relief offices provide ESL training. Others are linking to other community resources for ESL training. But that is a massive part of trying to get that initial language down so that people can begin to make relationships. We can't expect people to be able to make relationships if they can't speak the language of their neighbors. And so ESL classes become small communities in and of themselves as people from all over the world um, who come as refugees or as immigrants are learning a language together. And it's beautiful to watch the community form in, in ESL. Refugees who enter the country have an immediate work permit. They are eligible to work from the day that they arrive. And so World Relief offers employment services. And these are as I mentioned before, these are really fast kinds of services to move people into jobs because of the need to earn a living. And many of those jobs are just an initial job. They probably have little to do with whatever a refugee was doing prior to coming, but they're very important for the stability of the family. And then as we are able, we want to see refugees move into to other jobs and better jobs as their language improves, as their as their skills in working in the U.S. And refugees do not necessarily come all from the poorest parts of the world. There are professionals who um, are really looking forward to trying to get recertified in their profession and practice that profession here. So we need to focus on their employment. Obviously, we focus a lot on housing. Um, Housing is very, very expensive. Dermomo mentioned that. You get to the end of the first month, you've worked very hard, and most of your paycheck is eaten up in housing. So there's a lot of work that goes into both securing housing for refugees, but also helping them understand how to live in U.S. rental housing. And 
you know, but it's amazing to me how rapidly so many refugees um, do actually become become homeowners. And that's just amazing to see folks linked with community resources that then they learn about being uh, a homeowner. And one of the statistics I love about refugees in general is that in 2015, 57% of refugee-led households owned their house outright with no debt. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty amazing. That can't be said of many households among the foreign-born U.S. I mean, the the native-born U.S. Right. population. So there is there is such a desire to put down roots. And so, if I had to sum up our services, it's really helping these families find their initial stability, lay this groundwork for the multi generational task it will be for them to be able to really become part of society. Yeah, and it, it's, uh, I mean, Dermomo talked about it, that it was such a huge part of his. It's a huge part of so many of the refugees that are coming uh, to the U.S., and, and I know that uh, World Relief and some of the other organizations that are doing similar work, such a huge part of it, but you can't do it with just your staff that's in an office somewhere doing this work. No you way, no how. Absolutely. <laughs> need volunteers. And I know there's so many people, if you're listening in out there, I, I, I'm, if you're like anything like me, you're sitting there going, all right, so what can I do here? You know, how can we really help be the hands and feet for these services? What does that look like? And, and you know, that, that that's something that I definitely want both of you to speak to, but, um, uh, I also want to hear how we can do it really how to help without hurting too, right? Because that's something we're hearing so much about. But to make sure that we're coming in with the right heart, the right mind that isn't one of savior, but is one of we're coming to walk alongside and what can that look like? So can you speak to that just as far as what what volunteers can be doing, what people listening today can be doing and what posture we need to be taking while we're doing it? I think that when when we see people who have been through traumatic experiences, who have been forced from their home, who are having to start life over, I think it's really easy for us to see the trauma that people have been through and not recognize the incredible strength and the many abilities that people are actually bringing. I think the main thing that anyone can do is to form a relationship. And I mean a real relationship, not one that is just superficial, but really learning about the strength and the capability and the ability of the of the people who are coming. Yes, there are needs. But, you know, our North American mindset is so much we see need and we just try to come up with a program to fix it. We are talking about incredibly competent, resilient people who will be able to fix many of the things that they need, but they need that relationship with people in the community. So whether that is, um, you know, volunteering through any number of, of organizations, if you don't live near a World Relief office or another refugee resettlement office, there are immigrants and refugees living all throughout the country, whether it's volunteering in your local school to help limited English-speaking students as a tutor, whether it's to come alongside um, families who just may be living in your neighborhood, whether it's getting with your church and really working with 
the neighbors who live in an apartment complex that may be um, predominantly immigrant families, just so that there is actual relationship. Because I think so many of the differences, the things that divide us come from there not being a genuine relationship and we see someone as other. And whenever we're in that position, it makes it very hard for us to see what to see beyond the difference in what separates us. But real relationship or real friendship changes that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course there are there are concrete things. I mentioned ESL tutor. There are uh, transportation, especially for people who live in a suburban area, people who are just willing to help someone get to an appointment, um, to be a to be a coach, to coach someone on how to do job interviews if they're ready to move from that first job to another job. There are all kinds of of types of volunteerism. Being a team, you read about the good neighbor teams in the book. Being a team together to surround a particular family is a great way to do it. I think on any of the websites of our World Relief offices, you'll see all kinds of volunteer opportunities listed for the concrete things. But I wanted, I just wanted to step back to emphasize that that real relationship and the mutuality of learning from each other, that's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I know that's something that, uh, you know, we talk about all the time is, you know, when you walk alongside somebody, the needs will become apparent. And then you can actually step into that and and help them. But sometimes them helping meet your needs helps them to even, it's even better. It's even more helpful to them to say, wow, I am part of this and we are part of each other's lives. I'm not just a charity case. And can you speak to that? Absolutely. There's so much dignity. Yeah. So Dermomo, can you speak to that as well and what impact volunteers had on your life, but also how you've seen it um, from, you know, your job as well and what what you've been able to see happen since you've been here? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I have been in both ends of being a volunteer or being volunteer to help. So, you know, uh, first of all, let me just say a big thank you to all of the volunteers who are outside there because they're a huge part of the work that we do here. And, uh, you know, a lot of the refugees that we see here are coming from a community that they are very relational. You know, you wake up in the morning, you say hi to a neighbor, hi to an uncle and that. And when they come here, what we think always is just, no, they lost so much of their belongings. No, they lost those relationships too. They have no one to speak to, to say hi to in the morning. So when, when they have someone to volunteer with them, they would help them to compensate what they have lost, those relationships that they grew up with, they had people to talk to. So once they have a volunteer, they would look at that volunteer, not as just a stranger. For them, it, it becomes a family member, someone that they can relate to, someone that they can really spend time with. So it is a huge help when someone or a family comes along, a refugee family or an immigrant family, just to help them, just to talk to them. Oftentimes people think, you know, I have nothing to give to the refugee family, to immigrant families. And oftentimes they are not looking for material things. They are looking for relationships. So they need someone to relate to. So that, that is a huge, huge, huge help. And, and the, the other thing is, you know, as Emily mentioned, we, we do provide ESL classes. 
But just sitting in a classroom for two hours and going home is not enough. So once they have a volunteer, of course, the volunteer speaks English. And that would give the families the opportunity to learn, to practice their English more. So they have more time to practice it and, and to be able to speak in a way that is not in a classroom set. So now it is uh, a comfortable situation, a comfortable environment wherever they can just chat and try to talk and help them just pick up some sentences or maybe even some few words. And, um, you know, we, you know, at Waterloo, we do our maximum, we do our best, but, you know, a volunteer would help the client with what is beyond what we can do. You know, I help with public benefits. And uh, public benefit is not everything that, I mean, uh, a family would need. But when they have a volunteer that would walk with them, would help them in the things that we can do through the office, that, that is a huge help to the, to the family as well. And, you know, one of the things is a lot of refugees, well, they did not only leave their countries, but they were rejected by their own people. Mm. And going through the East Pencil, I have been through it myself. So when they're here and a volunteer shows up at their place, it makes them feel, yeah, you know, we are still accepted, you know. We are here in a strange place, but these people are making us feel acceptable. That is a huge benefit for a refugee family from an immigrant family. And uh, that helps a lot. It, 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 it is a healing itself. When you have been rejected for so many years, and then all of a sudden, a total stranger shows up, and the way they treat you, they make you feel that you're accepted all over again. And, and that is the sense of, of a home for them. That's what makes a lot of people feel, you know what, although I, this place may be a strange place to me, although I may not call this place home, but I know I am accepted here. I know that, you know, the people around me, at least they love me and they are talking to me. But it, the, the volunteers' involvement does not end with only the clients benefiting, but I believe the volunteers do benefit as well. And some of that would be, um, I hear a lot of people saying here, you know, I want to get involved in the community, but I don't know what to do. I don't have any skills to provide. A simple thing to do, just to come along a refugee family, come along an immigrant family, just get to know them, build that relationship. But as I said earlier, that's what they need here. That's what they don't have here. Mm -hmm. So when you come along that, you, you're now doing something. And, and some people will say, no, you know what? I want to be part of something that is happening globally. You know, I want to make change globally. Okay. Do you want to make a global change? You can do that locally here. You know, the people that you want to help overseas are just at your backyard. So it is one way to get people engaged in global issues. They're right in your backyard. When you help them, you are making an impact. And that is a huge benefit for people to get involved in it as well. And, you know, how much do we know about the people in the other countries overseas? So a volunteer who would volunteer with, with uh, would come along a family, a refugee family, it is a huge learning process. You know, knowing about their countries. I have seen a volunteer who would go and buy a map just to find out where the country is. And then they would come back with the map and tell the family, refugee family, oh, 
I now know where you come from. This is your, your country. This is where it's located. So probably the volunteer had no clue prior to that where the country is. And, and you know, I have been through that myself. I had someone who told me that I, I am from Jamaica. And I'm like, no, I told her I come from Sudan that is in Africa. And he said, no, Africa is in Jamaica. <laughs> and I'm like, no, Africa is not in Jamaica. <laughs> so someone like this, if he comes along a refugee assembly and goes back to look at the map where Sudan is, he would come back and say, oh, no, I was false. Africa is not in Jamaica. So there is a lot of things that the, the, the people volunteering will learn from it as well. And it widens, you know, the way they look at the world around them as well. Because, you know, when it widens, your worldview becomes completely different than before. Because this this refugee family, this immigrant family, I just an open book to you. So a volunteer will just talk to them through the day as they are talking. There are a lot of things to be learned from as well. So... It, again, I'm talking about it being a learning, a learning process to go through. And uh, I have seen a lot of families locally here who would now come to know that a lot of things that we take for granted here is not the same overseas. And the only way to come to know that is to volunteer with a family and, and just learn from them, just listen to them. And they learn from the resilience and the precision that, that they have. They have been through so much. And, you know, for, for many of us who, who are here, and I, let me speak to those who are born here, it is a learning curve just to know that these people have been through so much. And now they're here. And when you walk to the apartment, they are still smiling. And then they're still saying hi. And then at the time that you think they have nothing to provide, they are offering food. And I, I have heard from a lot of volunteers coming back say, why would they give us food? And I'm like, no, culturally, you know, you have to be welcomed. And one of the ways just to, to, to say thank you is to offer you something. And by doing that, people are learning a whole lot from the refugee community. Yeah, that's just some great, some great words. And I, I think that is so encouraging. So often we talk about, you know, hospitality just with, with other people. And I loved what I, what I read in uh, Seeking Refuge, where it talks about in Romans 12, where it talks about hospitality. It says it literally means practice loving strangers. And, you know, if we just make room in our life for each other, um, amazing things can happen. And that, that's really what I'm hearing here is just, you know, just open up your heart, your mind, and your life. Um, to people. And, 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 you know, I think this goes for everyone in our communities, right? Not just the refugee families, which is a huge need, right? But just with each other, right? When we do life with each other, whether it's glo- global, local, whatever, we really start seeing each other as human beings that love each other and as brothers and sisters in this, in this walk and in this journey. And so what can that look like? Um, it's just, I just get excited to hear these stories. So, um, well, you know, as we wrap up, I'd love to just talk all day about these things, but I know we, we all have uh, time constraints, but, uh, you know, we, we asked these couple questions of, of all our guests and I, I'd love to just kind of put both of them out there to you and, and you guys can, uh, maybe have Emily uh, answer the first one and Dermoma answer the second. But uh, the fr- the first question is, uh, what have you read, watched, or listened to uh, that has impacted your thinking on these issues and really how we can love orphan and vulnerable children and their families with excellence? 
you know, I think in as this has become so much more a part of our national dialogue, there's been some really, really great work that's that's out there. I think um, obviously I'm grateful to Matt Sorens and Stephen Bowman and Isan Smear for seeking refuge. I uh, appreciate you referencing it. And Matt is currently working on um, Matt and Jenny Yang, uh, who wrote Welcoming the Stranger years ago, are currently working on um, a version two of that book, which we hope will be out soon. Um, but I think it's really important. Um, I was at a seminar last week or two weeks ago, um, listening to a woman from Rwanda um, named Immaculate, and she has written a book called um, Left to Tell. And I think that is one that has impacted me just on her story of surviving the Rwandan genocide. And I think it's, you know, so many times we're very curious. We want to know uh, people's stories and and they're important, but I think it's also sometimes hard to ask. So I think something like her book is really, is really important. I think there are some wonderful books just on uh, like Danny Carroll's uh, Christians at the Border, just about how to think, uh, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, how should we be thinking about these immigration questions? Because all refugees are immigrants. They're they're a subset of, of all immigrants, and we really are looking, um, we've talked about refugees today, but World Relief is really looking at our service to the foreign-born living in the United States, so that includes all, all immigrants. And I think the more we can understand um, those personal stories and also our our particular role as Christians in this in this narrative. Yeah, definitely. Then the last question for you, Dermomo. Um, what person has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children and their families uh, with excellence? Yeah, there is a pastor here in in the. Chicagoland area that he shared a story um, of himself going to the Middle East and seeing a child that has a problem, some physical problem. He stepped up to do that. And every time I just sit down and think about this story, um, you know, it, it blows my mind because, uh, you know, as, as humans, and, and I, speaking of myself, of someone who have been pushed out of my country, and now today I'm here. I did not choose to be here, but I'm here. And I believe I'm here for a purpose, and that purpose is to give as much as I, as I can for a good cause, and that could not be necessary financially, but I, I, I believe I have so much to give. And uh, if it is uh, my time is spending with someone, if it is just listening to someone who's going through some difficult time, or if it is come along somebody who's going through some process and just walk with him, that's where I'm going today. That's where I'm heading today. And um, I'm not sitting down when I look down at myself saying, you know, I'm here just as a refugee. I was pushed out of Sudan at some point of time. But I do believe I'm, I'm a giver, and I will continue giving. And I would love to see us coming together to contribute something, whatever we can do it. Let's just put it together for a good cause. Mm. 
Well, Emily and Dermomo, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I know I'm better for it. Um, this conversation was so not only informative, but just it really encouraged me in so many ways. And I and I hope that it did the same for our audience. And so for everyone out there, um, you know, you can go to the show notes to get the, the everything that we talked about today as far as worldrelief.org, other uh, resources that you might be able to have. But Emily and Dermomo, thank you so much. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you, Dermomo and Emily, for uh, that wisdom that really does bring some uh, focus to this conversation. It brings some understanding of some really some things that we just if you're not uh, exposed to it, you really wouldn't know about it. And so, Karen, what what really stuck out to you with with what uh, Emily and Dermomo shared with us? Yeah, Phil, I think there was a couple of things that stood out for me for sure. One of the the things was when Emily was just kind of giving us the nuts and bolts about the process. I think that's super helpful, not only for me, I've said this over and over again during this series, I am so far from being knowledgeable and an expert in this area. And so just hearing her really outline in detail what this process even looks like was incredibly helpful for me. The other piece that I really valued and and liked hearing was um, what she was referring to related to intentionality and kind of a strengths-based approach. She didn't use that term necessarily, but she was talking about looking for the positive things within families and individuals who are in a situation where they are refugees. She was saying and emphasizing, hey, like, we, we don't need to just focus on the trauma, which is interesting because you know how much um, I am such an advocate for the importance and the veracity of mental health and trauma. But I loved that she's bringing out the fact of, hey, like this doesn't define the families that we're working with. This cannot be the defining factor. We have to come from a strength-based approach that helps us form intentional and legitimate and authentic relationships with the families that we get to work with in this capacity. Yeah, no, she was, she was fantastic. I too, that just the, you know, the logistics of the process and how it actually works and to be reminded over and over as we have been throughout this series that, you know, these people aren't, you know, banging on the door wanting to come into the U.S. It's something that's this long process. It's an arduous process. It's something that, you know, they're chosen to do. And a lot of them, you know, would rather just stay at home. But as Dermomo said, you know, there is that hope for better, even though it's not the ideal. And that's what I know a lot of them are doing. But when they get here, you know, I mean, as, as we talked about before, just the, could you imagine the Halloween thing that, right. you know, when, when so, Dermobo shows up so at the airport wild. and you got a bunch of freaks around the airport dressed up as weirdos, you know, and he's like, what am I getting into? But what'd you think about him, just his story and just how he was able to come and, and really adjust, even though it was really, really challenging and hard, as he said. Yeah, I thought that was really powerful. I think it brings a unique perspective and a really needed perspective. He's not just someone, you know, like me or you, who obviously like we are white bread, grew up in America, type of middle-class Americans. Um, he's saying, look, I've, I've lived through this and here's what was really helpful for me. And here, here's what was scary and here's what was weird. And um, I loved when he was talking about the specifics um, just related to when refugees enter into a new environment. It isn't just that they've lost their stuff. Like it's not just about their stuff. It's not even about their jobs or their financial security or their homes. It's it's the reality that they've lost significant relationships. They've lost that support system. And in that, even though it wasn't explicitly said, what I'm hearing is that that part of culture, that they've lost pieces of their culture and all of those things that he was mentioning are so wildly important to what we know 
helps with resiliency, what helps with that bounce back factor of having support systems, of having healthy relationships, of having someone that genuinely cares for you and knows, hey, like here's where your country literally is on a map. And so just knowing that those relational aspects are important, I think um, that was really powerful for me to hear too, Phil. Yeah, and you, you mentioned the resiliency, and I know that we have uh, next week, actually, I'm excited because we have another mini episode that you're going to be talking about the vicarious resiliency, and and uh, that's how important that is to understand what that is. Well, you know, we could talk on and on about this. I'd be curious to hear out there what, what really stuck out to you out there in the audience, and uh, share that with us. Share that with us on uh, on our Facebook page. Just give us a comment. Give us a, an email. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Also love to see your ratings and, and reviews on iTunes. That helps us get it out there to more and more people. Um, and it also gives us, you know, feedback, which we value tremendously. Uh, well, right now we have a, a recommendation uh, from, uh, from Dr. Karen here on uh, something that does relate to this, not directly as you might imagine, but it definitely relates to what we've been talking about through this crisis. So Karen, what uh, what do you have for us today? All right. You nailed it. It doesn't necessarily relate. And we we're kind of making a stretch here, but I think it's an important stretch because I think this book is maybe one of the most important recommendations for, for families. Um, I have the unique opportunity and this really amazing privilege to work with hundreds of families through my private practice um, as a clinical psychologist. And I can tell you that one of the number one things that I've seen in the past two and a half years of working here in America is the um, just kind of outrageous impact that pornography is having upon families. One of the things that I say when I have the opportunity to speak to churches or ministries or even school districts is that pornography is not every man's battle, it's every family's battle. And so my recommendation mm-hmm. for you guys this week, I can't recommend this book enough. It's one of my favorite resources for parents. It's called The Tech Wise Family. It's by Andy Crouch. And that subtitle is Everyday Steps for Putting Technology in Its Proper Place. This is a book mm-hmm. that's gonna help you as parents or caregivers or aunts or uncles or teachers. It's going to help you kind of get an understanding. It's a great synthesis of understanding how is technology impacting our kids' developments and what does that look like to raise children from a biblical perspective, from a biblical worldview, and use technology as a tool? What does it look like to protect your kids' hearts and minds against the dangers of technology? It doesn't mean that we're going to be kind of locked in a closet and not using technology, but it means how do we teach our kids to use technology in a healthy and safe way? And so again, I know that may seem really irrelevant to the refugee crisis, but I think one of the things that we're hearing over and over again in this series is intentionality related to relationships. And I think as parents, one of, if not the most important relationships that we have is our relationship with our children. And that requires intentionality, not just in training them and teaching them from a biblical worldview, truths of the gospel, but it's intentionality related to a full holistic relationship and teaching them how to stay safe in our technology filled culture. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm about uh, halfway through the book and I absolutely love it. I will second this recommendation fully, even though I haven't finished it, partly because I know Andy <laughs> and um, I know the wisdom he has. And what I absolutely love about the book, too, is he has the reality check at the end of every chapter that really shows his heart and that he's not perfect. His family is not following all of these things perfectly. But even if you do it a little bit, it will change and transform your family and the way you can actually connect with each other. Um, 
um, because, you know, all this technology that's supposed to help us connect often does just the opposite. And I know for me personally, the other day, we know we're telling the kids, can we, and they watch, can we watch a movie? Can we watch a movie? And we said, no, nope, no, nope, it's off. It's off. And they ended up building a teepee in the backyard and, and just creating this nether world out there. And it was so refreshing and encouraging to see that happening, um, which it has happened in the past and it's continuing to happen more, hopefully. And so, folks out there, thanks again uh, for being a part of this conversation. Thanks again for um, just all that you do uh, to, to help love orphan and vulnerable children. And we, we do hope and pray that everything that we're doing on the show, all these conversations we're having with these different people will help you to know more and more every day how you can love orphan and vulnerable children better and better. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.